Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Open Minds Podcast. Today is another episode from my dinner table conversations. Recently, I talked to my friends about the ever-changing role of the modern woman, and it got me thinking, are we living in a man's world despite the years of feminism? Is it controversial to say that we're still living in a man's world? Welcome to Open Minds. It's the podcast that attempts to explore with genuine curiosity the world's most intriguing issues. Some topics include climate change, gun control, basic income, and so much more. I invite guests on who are both proponents and detractors of these issues so that we can be exposed to more nuanced perspectives we may not be hearing. You can find me at openmindspodcast.com or anywhere you stream music. I'm your host, Christopher Balkrin, and welcome to Open Minds. Back in March, I had a podcast with my friends on the modern dating scene. And one question that came up was whether or not the average woman, modern woman, however you want to define that, whether or not they have respect for men. Now, I know that seems like a very blasphemous question, because obviously there should be respect for both genders. But surprisingly, most everyone agreed that the modern woman does not have respect for men. Now, I don't want to use my friend group as a proxy for the rest of society, but it was really fascinating to hear that perspective, because that took me by surprise. So I want to explore this further, and in this conversation with friends, I talk about explicitly this as well. Are we living in a man's world, and is that a controversial statement? I hope you enjoy it. As always, find me at www.openmindspodcast.com, and definitely follow me on Instagram at openmindspod or TikTok at openmindspodcast. I post daily, and people seem to really like those social media posts. I hope you enjoyed this, and I'll definitely catch you in the next one. I'm not used to being in front of the camera like this. I hear you, yeah. Or Mike. Okay, so the first question I have... Well, it's not a question, it's just a conversation. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we, You know, um, Zoe, Andrew, and I had a whole podcast on modern dating a few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, how it, how'd it go? It went pretty well. Uh, Andrew talked over me, but aside from that... <laughs> um, <laughs> I I would actually I would want to know what's your idea of a modern woman. Have you? Uh, that's a good one. Ooh. Wow. Um, I'd have to thank my mom. <laughs> we'll start there. I don't know. My mom's always been super independent, and I grew up in a household where like she was very much the badass. Um, and then my dad was so loving and supportive of her being herself fully and authentically. So that's what I imagine a modern woman to be. And that's, um, um, I was lucky that that's the kind of role model that I saw in a relationship. So I know a modern woman is like independent, they're career driven, they're um, fearless in everything they want to do. Um, but they're also, uh, they, they allow themselves to lead, but also follow uh, mm. or, um, you know, they're highly maybe emotionally intelligent. So they, they, it's a partnership. I don't know. And when it comes to maybe a modern 
partnership or a modern couple. I think it's where it's sort of like 50-50 and you have, um, yeah, you give both partners the ability to like take lead when necessary um, hmm. and then everyone can excel and reach their full potential. Yeah. Is that your... So that was pretty much my <laughs> my concept of a modern woman as well. Somebody who's uh, independent, but also has their own identity, right? Yes. Modern women have their own identity, yeah. whether it be through a career or a hobby of theirs, an ambition, whatever the case may be. Whereas pre-modern women, their life revolved around their husband and their children. The modern women are able to still... Yeah. Um, handle that and still take care of their household and their kids, but that's not just it for them. There's Absolutely. more to it now. So yeah. to me, that's a modern woman, which is close to what you said. Do you think, though, that the modern woman respects men? I think the modern woman respects, like, everybody's contributions, right? And I think the modern man also, we can talk about that, um, <laughs> is changing. Like, I hope if I have kids one day, I raise a son to be super compassionate. And I don't know, the word feminism is thrown around a lot, but they, I hope they're a feminist in, in the best ways possible. What does that um, mean for you? Well, yeah. And again, that definition is always like super politicized, but I think it just means like appreciating everybody's story and everybody's mm. contributions. Um, so yeah, I would say that, that, you know, that's what I'm hoping the next generation of kids become, right? People that are just appreciating every, what everyone brings to the table, which means allowing others to lead when they need to as well. Yeah. But do you think that the modern woman respects men though? Like, do you think that that's a thing? <laughs> I don't because you know we talked about that and I think the consensus was that the modern woman doesn't respect men mm. right because I think that there's I, I put the, the statement out there that we live in a man's world and in order for a woman to su succeed she has to have male traits or at least demonstrate male traits and maybe there's that resentment towards men as a result but I do. I don't think it's controversial to say that the modern woman doesn't respect men. Would you agree? Maybe the you're on an interview panel, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like an the old definition of a man, and that's what I keep yeah. getting at. Like, I hope the the modern man. I think the modern okay. woman uh, respects the modern man mm. who is respectful of the other person's contributions like right. what is a man then what are you defining as the a man's world right yeah um i don't know i think we should strive for mutual respect mm -hmm. because because then you get into like the gray area of then men won't take the feminist or the independent woman seriously if they're just saying that they're not respectful of the mm -hmm. man Maybe I need to think about this more from my own personal <laughs> point of view, but yeah. For me, I think it's, I wouldn't, I mean, there may be some, to some extent, they don't respect men, but I think it's also because they're fighting for, you know, their own, that they're fighting for, for their little world in a man's mm -hmm. world as well. So often enough that can come off as disrespectful, right? Yeah. So if um, I have a household with my husband and there's a decision we have to make regarding 
a major financial thing, I may fight that back and, mm. and want my input and opinion on it. He may take that as a form of disrespect by arguing right. with him instead of being submissive and saying yes to him, mm. right? So it, it you have to define disrespect. How are they disrespecting these men, right? In what format? By fighting for your rights, fighting for your own identity, fighting for your little space again in a man's world, sure, that can come off disrespectful, but is are they really consciously being disrespectful or they're just trying to get you to understand, like you said, let's have mutual respect here, you hear me out, I hear you out, we work as a partnership, right? Mm. Yeah. Do you think, though, that for men, it's still tough to establish that respect? Because I think as as many men, they feel like they're kind of working the, their way out from under the basement with a lot of women. They feel like there's already this stereotype of what men are, and maybe there's some assumptions that women make about good men, and men might feel like, well, you kind of already think this about me, so why, why would I try to kind of keep changing your opinion? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I think, I yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think most women... Because there's a lot of guys today that are feminists, I would say, or like very equal opportunity, but there's still that stigma about being this kind of like chauvinistic man. Is that fair? I think it is. And that might have to do something with the modern dating, right? Yeah. So, um, again, th- we had talked about this, 2% of men that most women go yeah. after, right? So, when you come across these same type of men over and over, you're going to generalize that all men are like that. Meanwhile, yeah. it's only the top 2% that are treating you right. um, misogynist or whatever the case may be. Um, so, when you generalize that and then you end up assuming that every man's like that, yes, that will um, construe your perception of what a true man is because you're not Mm. giving everyday man a chance at things. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I I was going to say that I think that the man that feels threatened by that definition of them being a man, um, I don't know. I think they need to do some internal work to see like, what is it that they have identified women are calling them out on? And maybe that's behavior that they actually should internally look to change. Um, because I'm hoping like the average modern, um, progressive ideal, anybody is looking for the best in each other. Um, and maybe that's like super naive, but, um, I don't think women are out to get men in in terms of like finding things wrong with them to begin with. Um, if men feel that way, then they need to do some internal work because maybe there is something there that they're missing. So I think they need to to honestly look at themselves um, and get honest feedback from their inner circle and from outside folks to be like, if you don't know me, what do you think of me? Or, you know, what is your opinion of me um, to kind of figure out what their reputation is beyond themselves? I don't know. So um, I was I think I was telling Andrew this that I'm reading this great book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts and it's about analyzing internet usage and these researchers are just finding that like the n- number the top hundred websites are like all porn sites <laughs> and so they they look at the types of porn uh, men and women are looking at um, but the stereotypes are reinforced in porn so men are attracted to physical beauty by and large usually like big tits whatever. But women are always attracted to emotional connection. So like Fifty Shades of Grey will always outsell pretty much any book. There's like the New York Times bestsellers, and then there's Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's just totally different, right? Totally different stratosphere. Do those stereotypes continue? And 
Uh, Manisha, you mentioned the modern man is a feminist. Do you think, though, that at the root, our drives in what we want in a partner don't change? So our politics might change, but who we are as people, that doesn't change at all. Like, you're a woman, you're more connected with an emotional story. I'm a man, I'm more connected with a physical attraction. Yeah, like, um, at the end of the day, like, we seek out or we like what we like, I guess. Um, But I think... uh, like ultimately if you even take a step back sure like an initial connection can happen because of a physical thing or because of that a initial emotional connection but if you're talking about a modern relationship or a modern marriage or a modern long-term connection then it needs to have something beyond that Mm. for substance right so both parties should seek out what truly like makes them tick or what Mm -hmm. truly makes them attracted to somebody for the long term Mm -hmm. um so I, I think uh, maybe that's that's kind of the that's how you that's the natural selection of how <laughs> how people find who they're looking for I guess right your that initial connection or oh that person doesn't have my qualities that I'm looking for mm-hmm. you know physically uh, but you're only going to make a relationship last if it has that emotional connection I guess right for sure. When it comes to physical attraction, in my opinion, I think both genders look for that physical attraction yeah. from their partner. Yeah, I, I think that's that. something, again, both genders do. But what ends up happening in a woman's case, more often than not, is um, they will often give the personality a chance as well. So a man may be good looking. He'll approach her at a bar or something. But then as he like makes her laugh and has a great time, she, she may not necessarily think he's the most attractive. But then eventually those feelings will start to develop. Sure. Um, I think Peter Zion, and I don't really, not Peter Zion, sorry, who am I thinking of? <laughs> Peter Jordan. Um, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, sorry. Hmm. Confusing my people now. Um, you know, he breaks it down the biology of women and men. And he says, biologically, we're all wired the way we are. Women are more empathetic. Uh, whereas men are, you know, more competitive. Yeah, that trait stays with us, uh, no matter what. So women will always be more emotional, more empathetic, and that's just who we are mm-hmm. as females. And men, again, the attractiveness will be from both par- parties. But I think for men, the, they look for younger women. So while mm-hmm. they look for looks as well, but it's also a younger woman with good looks. Right. Um, that stuck out to him. Sorry, I forgot your your question now. I know it was just building off the uh, the modern man being a feminist does that kind of go against like the idea of who we're attracted to physical attraction no no i don't think that changes anything i think they still they can stand for women's rights and you know Mm. get women to to um not have anti-abortion laws or like support them with uh career choices have give them a spot at the table things Mm -hmm. like that i think that's feminism to me um the attraction towards a woman i don't think that changes at all i think they're still wired to always find those younger women attractive sure. at the end of the day and that doesn't make them less of a feminist no it doesn't it's it's our biological wiring right that that i don't think that makes them less i think you know if they were let's say i was married to somebody and he chose to chase after a younger girl while we're married that mm. you know that says something about his character right but he can still have a preference for a younger woman, but still respect me as a partner and not mm-hmm. do something. I'm, I'm okay with that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I'm going to be emotionally more sensitive and cry once a month or whatever. And yeah. if he's taking care of me at that time, then we're taking care of each other's needs, I guess, in a way, yeah. right? I can't get upset of him, of a biological thing. I can't get upset at that. I wanted to ask both of you this question, uh, shifting gears, um, about education. Um, so... There's a big push now in the United States, especially, and in Canada, 
um, towards including race and gender in the curriculum, specifically in elementary schools. So we want to teach our kids to be more empathetic and be empathically concerned with each other. Um, first, what are your views on incorporating race and gender discussions in the classroom, let's say as young as grade one or two, um, and then throughout um, elementary school? I mean, I think it depends on how it's taught, right? Like, um, I know, for example, something like financial literacy is something that should be like sprinkled throughout. So, you know, there's going to be examples of it when you, um, in elementary school and in, you know, instead of, uh, you know, there's going to be examples of it, not just a course that's taught, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I'm getting at. So, um, concepts of uh, diversity and gender in, the U S or in Canada, like where your classroom is made up of so many different, um, people in general, I think it kind of is the bare minimum. Like, I think that's, mm. sh- that should already be there. Like that's maybe the conversations of, um, like historical, uh, historic cultures, uh, or, or, or those conversations, mm-hmm. maybe those can be saved for a later date, but as simple as when you're in elementary school, having examples of instead of it being like Amanda and Matt, you know, you have names like Manisha and Zoya, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm so, yeah. So, you know, essentially mm-hmm. like there, there can be really, you know, easy ways to bake in concepts like mm-hmm. that into mm-hmm. the curriculum yeah, without having it be a course or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. If there's, yeah, if it's kind of intriguing, like we, we are taught to an extent about race, uh, maybe not gender so much, but um, for me, it's, you know, you can, you can teach them, I guess, depending on how you teach them. So we would need more details on mm-hmm. that as well. But, you know, as times go by and as years and years come around, we often, we learn new things. So it's, it's okay to educate on the new mm-hmm. uh, research or new development or new concepts that come out, a uh, new gender identity that comes out for people. It's absolutely mm-hmm. normal to teach all of those things. I think it comes down to how you teach them that would make a difference mm-hmm. uh, instead of making it, a, like you said, a, a specific course, just integrating it somehow in the entire curriculum. Do you think that we should teach children about gender dysphoria at a young age? Education doesn't hurt. Here's the thing. So when it comes to education, I'll never say no to that because education is always good, uh, regardless of what age you're teaching them at. Again, it comes down to how you're teaching them that. Hmm. Um, You know, when you're growing up, it's not just gender you're trying to figure out. You're trying to figure out your career, your life's purpose. There's everything you're trying to sort out and, and be like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Especially when you're in your teens around that age, especially even harder for you. Yeah. Uh, Because you tend to follow trends instead of trying to figure out who you are as a person. So, uh, absolutely, I think education is is absolute must in my opinion. Hmm. Um, I don't know how I feel specifically, but I will say that I think we just need to teach kids uh, to be better communicators about their feelings and about the what they're going through in life. So. You know, there's obviously like educational programming, like how to count, how to do the alphabet. Um, But recently there's been a lot of like even Disney movies about, you know, I'm not angry. I'm, uh, I feel, (laughs) (laughs) I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel confused. I feel worried. Uh, You know, we need to explain to kids that emotions aren't just four things Mm -hmm. like happy and sad and you know it's it's all these other things and maybe that will help um 
kids better express themselves in general. And then that will lead to a society where you can talk to your friends about, you know, what you're going through so that, um, so that just in general, everything in life is easier to, to express. I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes we put everything in so many different boxes that then kids like, I, I know, you know, generally like kids nowadays see that and they're like, I, I like my friend. Am I gay? You know, mm-hmm. um, because we've already named it to a child when they haven't had the, um, ability to fully even process what their emotions are in general to, to know romantic love versus no, like, like, um, you know, Ellen is my best friend. Like hmm. she's, I love her as, you know, so I think in general, it comes down to teaching kids about how to express themselves well and articulate their emotions and their feelings. Misha, you made a good point. You made a point about it doesn't have to be Matt and, Chris in this textbook it could be Manisha and Zoe. Why are names so important in how we understand history or uh, education? I mean, you you find a connection. It's not just names. I mean, even even you know the color of your skin. You see a basketball player who's black. You know the the kids in the black community will look up to them and be like, oh, there's somebody I can look up to and, mm. and want to uh, have my ideal and want to pursue and be like that person. So when when an immigrant child sees their name in a textbook, they're like, oh, like mm. I'm accepted, right? My name is similar to that person. I'm, I'm Zo- well, not Zoe's not a nickname, but like uh-huh. Zohal, I see Zohal, like, oh, great, there was another mm. Zohal before me. So so when they, when they feel like they're included in mm. the community or in the society, even in the form of as simple as their name being included somewhere, uh, that's a comforting feeling. That's mm. a comforting feeling, especially uh, 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 being an immigrant, mm. coming into a completely strange country and, and not knowing people, not knowing the language, not knowing anything, especially as a child, um, trying to figure out life. So when you see that tiny little connection, you just it's comfort. It comes down to just comfort. And that's really important to incorporate in the curriculum. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Um, if, if a kid you know, from a young age feels like they're included in society and they're part of uh, this bigger picture, then that sense of inclusion will continue on throughout their life. And there won't be a segregation like, oh, I'm not being respected as an Afghan or whatever the case is. So I'm not going to talk to this group of people because they're not including me. Right. So I'm going to exclude them as well. And then that just that that separation, that segregation just keeps growing instead of doing the complete opposite, which is Mm -hmm. try to eliminate that. So I think some of the challenges with this is that not everybody feels excluded if Matt and Josh are the names in a history textbook as an example or a novel. Um, They just, they don't think of it, they don't internalize it that way. I think the other challenge is that if we do say Manisha and Zoe in this example, um, how do we know that this changes the behavior of children or they feel more included? And if we see no change, do we just say, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's Matt and Josh or Manisha and Zoe, as an example. I think that's probably where a lot of people are questioning some of the changes that we're seeing in the education curricula. It's that, does it really matter if it's Matt and Josh or Manisha and Zoe? No, it seems very symbolic. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the changes that are being implemented are symbolic and not based on actually changing behavior. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think it comes back to what Zoe said. We'd have to like understand what the curriculum entails in terms of how they're actually baking that in. Sure. Um, I feel like that's a really small step to make. That's almost subconscious, right? It's like, but I guess the question is like, is it a step? That's the question, right? And like, does it lead to like Mm -hmm. change behavior? Well, I feel like with a lot of things, like 
name me any public policy program and tracking changed behavior is the most difficult thing. But subconsciously, I feel like if it leads to genuine engagement, like when you hear Toronto mentioned in a song, you're like, oh, Toronto, (laughs) you hear your name mentioned in a, in a, in a lesson plan. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to pay attention. So I just mean, that's fascinating. I think so. I, I think. I, I, to me, I, I, totally different opinion. I, if, um, if I saw a Guyanese. Well, your name is Chris. No, but if I saw like a Guyanese person <laughs> in our curricula, I wouldn't feel any type of affinity to that. I just mean it's such a small, bare minimum step, but I'd I know. love to learn what the actual curriculum entails. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to contradict myself. I do agree with Chris, though. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it, yes. Here's the thing. Here's yes. as as, but it depends on the age. I think it comes down to the age. When when kids are young and they see their name something somewhere or they see something including that's that represents them a little bit, they get excited about that. We're talking like ten years old, eight years mm-hmm. old, right? As you get older, obviously you see your name, you're like, oh, you, I don't even want to be in this class right now. I don't care for my name in a textbook, right? Um, so it comes down to the age. So I don't think it it may necessarily make a significant difference, um, but it may be at a young age. For the younger, younger kids, it may positively just just give a little positive um, effect or emotion for them. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean like change every single textbook down to universities to like from like Adam and Steve to like Raj and Rahul. Like right, it doesn't right. like, you know, that's I think that's excessive. I think at that point it goes a yeah. little excessive. Yeah. Uh, Raj, Raj and Rahul, those are like <laughs> such specific names. I don't know. That's what <laughs> <in> my head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, but you, you know, so so don't don't do that because that's yeah. a waste of resources as well. You're yeah. printing all these textbooks all over again. So um, that yeah, con- a bit contradictory. It just sure, depends sure. on the context of where we're changing these yeah, names. Absolutely. And, what and age also, and yeah, I wasn't even talking about textbooks. I was talking about yeah. in the lesson, the, the lessons verbally instructed, I, uh-huh. and then the name is brought up. No, I okay. I I would have to learn more about what the curriculum entails. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Open Minds Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Balkrin, and a reminder, you can find me at www.openmindspodcast.com, on Instagram, at openmindspod, or on TikTok, at openmindspodcast. Feel free to leave a comment, like, or follow. Send me a message. Let me know what you think of this episode, and I will definitely catch you in the next one.